Welcome to the Kind Faith Bible Podcast. Conversations about how we read the Bible for newcomers and nerds alike. Hey everybody, I'm Jeff. I'm Tyler. And we're so glad you tuned in for these Bible conversations. For everyone from beginner to Bible nerd, we're talking about things that matter around Scripture. And today, I want to talk about something that at least, or we want to talk about something that at least when when we dove into this when I was a kid, I really had big questions about did this matter or not. I grew up in Texas, and the debate that was raging was the rapture. And was the rapture going to be pre-tribulation, during the tribulation, or post-tribulation? And if you were a smart Bible scholar, I guess, mm-hmm. you would have a defensible position for one of those three. And I listened to friends in college talk about it. like, And, and we would have hour-long, hours-long discussions about it. And in the back of my mind, the entire time, I'm asking myself the question, who cares? <laughs> Who cares? Why does this matter? What's the deal with the rapture? Last last episode, we said we're going to talk about some issues around end times and, and bring about uh, some clarity around some of the things, the, the book of life, um, the 144,000, the rapture. Today, we're going to talk about millennium. the rapture, the millennium. Just as, as you were saying that, I found it funny. We have created a system where we define ourselves as Christians based on this really odd idea. Are you pre-mill, pre-millennial, post-millennial, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Like we throw out these kind of terms in general Christian culture and we've defined ourselves around a very, like one or two verses really in the whole Bible. We're like creating whole systems. It's, it's kind of funny. It is hilarious yeah. and that that that's a part of why we're having this conversation we want to blow the doors off of these micro definitions and get us back to the heart of what matters and the heart of what scripture was pulling us to so as we talk about end times i want to i want to read a passage that has motivated me toward studying the end times but but talk about it as we move into a conversation about the rapture so Here it is. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 56. Jesus is talking. We talked about this last week. It's in the Olivet Discourse. And, And he says, When you see the cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And, and for me, Tyler, as I, as I kind of live with a position around, what do I do with all of this end time stuff? What do I do with how to interpret Daniel? And does when the rapture happen matter? Uh, and, and how do I know if, if COVID and the vaccine and all of these things that are happening globalization is a part of the end times. And it seems like Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm responsible to, to know and, and look and interpret the signs of the times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's a great way to start. And 
that that definitely accurately puts a finger on why folks who read really into all of the revelation and all of those books, like, because we feel like we're supposed to be able to interpret the times. That's great. One, just I'll throw this out before we even jump in. You might want to keep our email on hand, thekindfaith at gmail.com. I'm just going to guess there's going to be a lot of questions that are going to come up <laughs> in these conversations. So maybe just have that queued on your browser. Just start typing questions because we're not going to be able to handle all of it. Um, so I, I have that text open as well. That's Luke chapter 12. And right, right off the bat, one of the things that jumps out at me is this is Jesus speaking in the 30s AD. And he says, uh, how do, do you know how to interpret the present time, right? And so actually this call to be aware, to be able to interpret what's the, the signs of, of the current age and what's happening. Jesus is on the scene and most, and especially in this scene, he's, he's really drawing the dividing line saying, this is why I've come. Like as, as I've come, I'm preaching this good news, <clears throat> Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, and it's connecting people to this whole new life with God. And yet, as good as, as, good as that is, there's going to be people that completely reject it. And so it, um, it's a warning and a call to urgency, to watchfulness. But uh, I was just looking in the context right before uh, there's this talk of Jesus not bringing peace, but division. I think you wanted to bring that up too. But he says in verse mm-hmm. 52, from now on, no, no one in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. He's saying what's happening with the kingdom of God bursting in through Jesus is it's going to also create division. But mm. he says from now on in the present time. So my first answer is the call to be able to accurately identify what is God up to, who's on whose side, who's worshiping false idols, what, what is the world like and not giving my allegiance to the wrong things. That's actually the call for all Christians from the beginning until now. This responsibility to interpret the signs of the times rested not in a prediction of the future. It seems like it's a prediction of the future where he's talking about clouds coming, hey, it's going to rain, or this is what's going to happen with your crops. And you do, it seems like it's all about predicting the future. But what it's really about is, and I love the way you said that, the kingdom of heaven bursting in. And are you seeing clearly the lines between God's kingdom and the kingdoms of this world? And, and that's the interpretation that they're being called to. You you hinted at this, and it really is a part of the context of the Olivet Discourse, is, is Jesus is, is immediately foreshadowing what happens in 60 AD. In 60 yeah. AD, the future emperor Trajan comes in and destroys Jerusalem and, um, and 70, 70, thanks. And raises the temple. Yeah. And, um, that all of the, all of the political forces that were at play in that time is what Jesus was trying to call attention to. Yeah. And we live in this time where there's tons of political forces at play, but the point is not to, say, oh, look at China is growing as a power and therefore Jesus is coming back. It's, it's China is growing as a power, let's just say, and I'm using this as an example. I'm not saying specifically that China has anything to do with Revelation, just an example. But my point there isn't, oh, that's the sign that Jesus is now about to return. It is, oh my goodness, 
I need to check my allegiance and make sure my allegiance is fully grounded in the kingdom. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you're, yeah, mentioning that with like, what's the context? And so we're, we're, we're focusing in on this Olivet Discourse. It actually shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, and you're totally right. The way that it begins is Jesus just predicted the downfall of the temple. And then the disciples sit down with him on the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain you can see Jerusalem. It's just down this valley and up a short day's walk away. They're there and they, they literally ask, hey, that, that prediction you just gave us about the temple, when will that happen? And Jesus sits down and gives what has now famously been called the Olivet Discourse. And um, because he's using big metaphors and, and kind of scary language. He's quoting from places like Daniel and he's talking about the son of man coming on the clouds and he's doing all these things. But really the, the first and foremost, he's, he's answering their question. And, and um, maybe one reason why we, we kind of get hung up is we think, well, this is, he's using such big language, larger than life. Like surely he can't just be talking about a building being destroyed in 70 AD. But for the ancient Jew, that was the place where heaven and earth met. Like it wasn't just a nice fancy church building. It was the place where you went to meet with the living God who created heaven and earth. It was the only place you could make sacrifices. And somebody asked a couple podcasts ago, why aren't there sacrifices anymore if Jews are still being faithful to the yeah. Old Testament? Well, the reason is the temple's not there. That was the place you made sacrifices. Right. And so to to get our mindset around that, it, it is such an important place. For anyone, a prophet of the ancient world, for Jesus to claim that this temple is going to be destroyed, it's like the only type of language we could use would be end of the world type of language. The sky is falling. Dare I say apocalyptic? Exactly. In the American yes. interpretation of that word? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And so that, um, we have to kind of switch our perspective and realize, so why would Jesus be launching into this all of it discourse? Because it is that climactic and that that big of a, a claim to say the place where everyone went to meet with the living God is now going to be destroyed. There's really no language you can put on how important that would be. But Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, Wal- uh, Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, uh, wrote a book called The Land about, uh, I would think, 20 years ago now. And so important was the temple and the land that his his submission in the book, he, he said that the entire Bible can be interpreted by movement toward or away from the land yes. and the triggers of movement toward and away from the land with the temple as the central feature of finally abiding in the land and finally God residing yeah. with his people. So huge, huge uh, thought that that we just don't yeah even even the destruction of the United States Capitol doesn't equate emotionally to what the destruction of the temple would equate to yeah I'm really glad you brought that up the the idea of the land this actually will help segue we, we, we wanted to talk about the rapture in particular and I'm gonna just lay my cards out initially I don't think the Bible talks about the rapture um, we we got to unpack that. I know. <laughs> By the way, he has three jacks and two threes. <laughs> so, um, and one, getting putting yourself in the mindset of a first century Jew 
who's grown up on the stories, who, who is a part of the life of Israel. The story of the whole Old Testament has been one of a migration toward the land. God promised us this land. And again and again, uh, from the beginning until the end, when we rebel against God, he, he thrusts us from the land. He expels us and exiles us from the land. The very idea of the, especially in, in very pop culture, you know, some of those left behind series and stuff like that, the way I read all those books, by the way, the way that it's written that, that the faithful are going to be taken away from the land doesn't make any sense for me to sit. If I, if, if Jesus was talking to a group of first century Jews, which he was, and he actually was telling them, yeah, good news. You're going to be taken from the land. They would think, oh, we've rebelled against God again. We've sinned, so he has to exile us. Like the, the very, that, that's the, the wrong direction. Antithetical. So, yeah. So, so take us to a couple passages about the rapture where Peter, let's yeah. read them yeah. and then let's, let's parse them out and try to understand what's going on there. Once again, we, we will reference N.T. Wright. Hi, N.T. Wright, if you're listening. Tom, we're big fans. Um, <laughs> we, we thought about calling this the N.T. Wright Fanboy Podcast um, or reading the Bible rightly. Uh, but hey, yeah. so take us to some passages. A little, a little cheesy. We're just warning you, N.T. Wright's going to be referenced. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's start in the Olivet Discourse, but I'm going to flip this over to the Matthew version. It's... it's I think the longest of, of that. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all writing. What did Jesus tell his disciples that day when they sat down and asked? You just talked yeah. about the temple. Industry. Interesting point, yeah. by the way, for, for you or Bible scholars, um, the four gospels tell similar stories, but there's places where those gospels diverge. The places where they all contain the same content is a place where we as biblical interpreters have to pay special attention. Yeah. This is hugely important because all four writers decided this is content that needs to be in my gospel story that I'm telling about Jesus. So that's true. Background. Good. So where are we? Matthew what? So let's do Matthew 24 verse 40. And I, right before this, actually, the end of verse 39, Jesus says, So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So right off the bat, a, a typical, in, in the last hundred years or so in the West, the reading of this passage has been used to talk about the rapture because it seems like there's going to be two people working and all of a sudden my buddy Jeff's going to be gone. Maybe his clothes will be left behind, maybe not. Um, but that's, that's the typical idea when you read this story that you're going to just, the, the faithful, the believers are the ones taken away from the earth. They're going to either vanish or be sucked up into the sky and the unbelievers are going to be left behind. Right? Yes. Just like in the books where, gosh, I can almost remember the lead character's name. He was a c captain of a plane and all of a sudden he walked back in the plane and there were neatly folded piles of clothes where exactly. all the raptured people yeah. disappeared. So, um, Jeff, why don't you go ahead? I'm just going to go not, not even very far into the context. Um, just literally the, the sentences right before verse 40. Uh, why don't you start? Can you read verse 37 through 39 for us? I would love to. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, 
Mary, Mary making and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so here's the context. He says, when the Son of Man comes, he is talking about a second coming. We as Christians totally affirm Jesus is coming back. Uh, something's going to happen. That, that, and there's, in every generation, there's a sense of watchfulness, of urgency, of preparing for that day. Um, but the, the metaphor that he uses is Noah in the ark and all the rest of the heathen folk marrying and merrymaking. And then the flood came, comes and takes them all away. So that means they're dead. Let's just call it what it is. A flood comes and sweep, sweeps you away does not mean that you got whisked away to a nice paradise. It means you died. So being taken in this context means yeah. I wasn't in the ark. Exactly. So the very next sentence is, so will be, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. The obvious context is you do not want to be taken. If you're taken, you're dead. That's like, it's so clear that this, this cannot be about the rapture. You want to be left behind. Um, the book's got it wrong. <laughs> like we want, we want shirts that say left behind and loving it or something like that. Like you, if, if this is our text about the rapture, we've got it wrong. The ones that are taken are the ones dead. Now in the context, I think what it's referring to, he's talking about armies surrounding Jerusalem and surrounding God's people. And he's warning them to get out of the way. Cause if you are trying, you, if you are still there, when the army comes to wipe out Jerusalem, it's going to be a massacre. I mean, 50 right now it's like 50% death rate. Right? Yeah. And so you're saying you're going to be two people in the field. The army's going to come by and one of you are going to be, it's going to be taken. You going know? to so, be killed. So the, the image can I, here. Can yeah. I keep going on this context? Yeah. Because if you read the verses after, it reinforces what you're saying. Because it says, but, but know this, if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake to keep his house from being broken into. There must, therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The danger of this whole passage is to die in the second coming yeah. when, when Jesus returns, not to be raptured. Interestingly, so right. this is not a text that supports so. the rapture. I don't think so. Um, I'd love to hear it for our <laughs> listeners and folks. If you if you've got issue to take with this, we we'd love do. to have Absolutely. a conversation. So this is one of those points where yeah. you can start writing your email. But our contention mm -hmm. is really clearly that based on the context of this of this passage, it's it this is not the rapture. Yeah. So one, one more on this whole Olivet Discourse, flip over to Mark chapter 13, verse 14. So Mark is the first gospel written of all the four gospels. And, and so the closest to all of these events, he's actually writing these down. And there's this little parentheses that Mark the author inserts into Jesus's speech. Um, one, we don't have time to get into this, but Jesus keeps referencing the son of man coming on the clouds right here in verse 14. This is Mark 13, 14. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's a quote from Daniel. So Son of Man, Clouds, uh, Abomination, those are all Daniel. We're going to actually do that in maybe the next episode. But uh, then he says, so, but whatever this is, some sign, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, Mark adds, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to, to take anything out. Get out of town. 
And the point is Jerusalem's going to be besieged. And if you're still there when the Roman army comes, no one is going to be left alive. And we know from history, for four years, the, the temple, the whole Jerusalem hillside was besieged. And the, the final battle, every Jew left in the temple, in the city gates were, were killed. But we know from uh, the church historian Eusebius, I believe, he actually tells the story of the Christians because of this oracle, Jesus warned them, hey, before this all, before it all happens, get out of town. This is not your fight. And so the Christians actually left Jerusalem, fled to the mountains and survived. They, did, they were not there fighting Rome mm-hmm. in the last siege. And, so. and if you need historical context, you may have seen, if you're an old person like me, the movie Masada and the continuation of this Roman siege. So violent was it. Yeah that the the Jews that were the last holdouts to escape Jerusalem fled to Herod's old temple fortress in Masada. And I, I was there. I, I stood on top of Masada, and I saw the ramp that they built, which was an engineering feat, and they did it bucket by bucket. And the wall that they built to contain, this was radical vengeance of an empire against a people. And... So that, that's, that's the context of what's going on um, that Jesus is predicting. Yeah. Oh, so, so good. So this Jesus in other places, um, his life, like this is where it connects us to the gospel and to the, the center of our faith. Uh, Jesus is warning his fellow Jewish uh, brothers and sisters and saying, I don't want you to die. Follow me. Trust in me. My way is a way of nonviolence. Our fight is not with Rome. Our fight is with the deeper, darker powers behind Rome. And what Jesus is doing is actually in going to the cross, he's saying, I'm taking all of that on myself so you don't have to. So get out of town. But the, the, the times, he's able to interpret the times, saying, but there's enough revolutionary talk. And I know that Rome has the bigger, badder army. Eventually, and he predicts within his generate within one generation, Rome is going to come, surround Jerusalem, and kill everybody because they're not going to drop down, the, put down the sword. He's saying, "I'm taking it for you. You don't have to. You don't have to live like that. Mm-hmm. Follow me. Get out of town. This building's going to be destroyed, but you don't have to be destroyed." And yeah, and we have some great historical facts that support this. There was a rebellion um, after Christ by Simon Bar Kokhba. Um, in the, I don't know, I think it's pre-70, it could be post-70. Bar Kokhba, Bar Kokhba 135. 135. And, and there were many like him, and he was set himself up as the Christ. Yeah. He set himself up as the one, and the writings and the historians pointed out really clearly here that this was a very common thing. I, I, the reason I say that is because I, I, in verse 21 of Mark 13, it says, and then if someone says, look, here's the Christ, look, there he is, don't believe it. Yeah. All of these forces were at play. And, and we go back to that original, are you looking at the signs of the times? Yeah. And for the Christian who's following Jesus, their allegiance could be pulled toward, uh, toward Judaism and fighting for the Jewish people against Rome. And, and Jesus is saying, clearly, your, your calling is to my kingdom. Flee. Yeah. I mean, he had 
uh, one of his 12 was Simon the Zealot, right? Yep. And the Zealot, that's the, that was the name for revolutionary. So if, if he hadn't been following Jesus, he would have been one of the ones picking up the sword, trying to fight Rome and failing. Yeah. And, and yeah, there were many, the Zealots really were following potential Christs. Yeah. There was actually a Galilean in the, gosh, I, I want to say uh, fifth, around 15 or 18 named, named Jesus in yeah uh in the galilee region so holy cow that's confusing for historians but it, it it's it's a real thing yeah yeah so that's uh there's the second major verse that is used to talk about rapture is in first thessalonians let's go um and kind of spoiler alert but we'll get here a little bit right at the end the the, the word rapture never shows up in the book of the revelation uh and i i, I want to round out this conversation by getting there but thessalonians is probably the main key rapture text uh it's it's actually where we get the word rapture in the latin version of the new testament the word rapturos shows up in this text that's where we get the word rapture well tell so, me where it is first thessalonians <laughs> what so we're in first thessalonians chapter 4 uh verse 13. perfect can i read it yeah so that to the end of the chapter let's, <clears throat> let's start there but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead of Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right. Is this where we get to talk about N.T. Wright? Yeah, he talks about this. <laughs> For sure. A lot of this is just me channeling Tom. Thank you, Tom. Um, yeah. So what, what are your, what do you think about this? This. Well, my initial, I, I did hear this as I talked with um, friends when I was in college, hearing them do their great debates. This was one of the go-to texts to say that it was um, a post-tribulation rapture because clearly look at all this difficult stuff has happened People have fallen asleep, i.e. died, and there's just a few left until the coming of the Lord. And they use that as, a, as an argument for the, the rapture comes after there's been a ton of great suffering and struggle. And, and here comes the great revelation for me that I got through um, N.T. Wright. This convention that's being talked about, or this image of a people going out or um, uh, or heading kind of forward or outside of town to meet someone is an emperor of Rome, emperor of Greece kind of tradition where when a conquering emperor came back to the capital, the all of the people of status would go and meet them on the road to yeah. accompany them back into town in one huge, wonderful parade yeah which and, makes sense you you the the president of the united states is coming to my house i'm not going to make him 
come all the way into the ha- into the house before I greet him. I'm gonna, you don't want him to punch yeah. your little ring doorbell and right. I'm yeah. gonna go all the way down to the driveway and escort him back. And the same like the emperor is coming to our town. We're not gonna make him walk all the way into our doorstep. We're gonna exit the town and surround him in this big entourage of celebration, waving flags or whatever, and then walk back in through the gates. Yeah, and this is a this this happens all the time in other parts of the world. When yeah. we visited Africa, every village that we went to that we were expected. I mean, the, the schools were out, the kids were out, there were songs being sung. They all came out to greet us and then drew us in. It yeah. was so beautiful. Yeah. That's a great image. Yeah, the and this is also from uh, Tom Wright, but that, he he gets into the background of Thessaloniki is the city here. It's a Roman uh, town, right? It was it was founded by Rome with Roman citizens uh, in Thessaloniki, and so a lot of them were like were uh, I guess we'd call them expats today. They they were citizens of Rome, but they didn't live in Rome. Mm-hmm. And the the idea if Caesar comes to visit us, it's not because Caesar wants to take us back to Rome. Rome's already overcrowded. But we are citizens of Rome because we're bringing the values and the, the lifestyle of Rome to this outer parts of the empire. And so that kind of idea as a metaphor for Christians, we're citizens of heaven, not because Jesus is going to take us there, but because we're bringing the values and the life and the power of God's kingdom to earth. And so this idea that the Caesar is coming to our town, not to take us away, but to visit us. Yeah. Uh, And it would have been particularly, so we were just in Greece uh, two summers ago, and it would have been particularly poignant for the people of Thessaloniki to hear this, because not only had it become a Roman town for the Romans to come meet the emperor, but Thessaloniki's just north of where Philip of Macedonia built his empire and where Alexander the Great moved the empire of Greece out from the world. So they understood the idea of what you do when an emperor arrives. Yeah. And it, it's it's powerful. So yeah. it, it fits this context. Yeah. So let me point out a few observations from the text itself. There's actually way more verbs about coming than anything about us leaving. Uh, and so Verse 14, uh, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the, the question on hand is, Paul, you're talking about the resurrection, and we get that for, for us who are still alive worshiping the Lord, but what about for our family members who have already died? And Paul says, God's going to take care of all that. Everyone who, is, who has been in the, with the Lord and in the Lord is going to rise from the dead. He's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, but then uh, verse 15 all of us who are left until the coming of the Lord, right? And so then verse 16, for the Lord will descend from heaven. Um, And I'm just going through. So then uh, basically the the thrust of this passage, then there is verse 17, those who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we just assume because we have this rapture idea. And this idea that heaven is out there by and by. So we think that means we're going to be caught up so that he can take us here. But the whole flow of the passage is Jesus is coming here, Mm -hmm. not leaving. Uh, Now, there is a sense, and I've debated this with different friends, like you can still say, if, if you want to believe in kind of, I would call it a mini rapture, to say there is this image that we're going to be caught up in the clouds to circle Jesus and bring him back down. So if you think that whole thing happens in a day, that's great. Um, 
I think that's fine. That's totally possible. There's a lot, we, we can't get into it today, but with the clouds, there's actually, it's not just the Caesar image. There's images from Exodus, the God coming on Sinai in this section. There's a lot of images from Daniel uh, and Ezekiel. The, son, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. We got to get into that later. Yep. But so there, there's very biblical references in this too. It's not just unless you know about the Caesar of ancient Rome, you can't understand this passage. But yeah. the point there is not we're going to be whisked away. That's what normally when people say rapture, it's we're gone for a, a long period of time. If you want to say it all happens in a day, we are raptured just up to the cloud level and then we come back down, all power to you. Um, I, I tend to think even that is probably more metaphorical because of the linkages to Daniel and, and such, but it, it, that's, not, that's not nearly as important as the point is Jesus is coming here, not we're leaving. Yeah, and, and which is affirmed, and I know we're going to get there, but, but when I read the book of Revelation, as full disclosure, um, I, I love the first few chapters where it talks about the church and challenges to the church, and then I skip to chapters 20 and on, or 21 and on, I, I yeah. don't quite remember. But, but what happens at the end of the book of Revelation Heaven comes to earth. Yeah. The new Jerusalem gets established on earth. There's, there is no, everybody leaves this thing that God loves. And it, and it just makes sense. We, we observe the visible beauty. We, I was just talking to, to the family about going to Yosemite soon because there's going to be great waterfalls. And that is so spectacular. Why would that cease to exist? Why would, why would that beauty of God intentionally created just cease to exist. And I know some people would argue that, oh, because there's more beauty and we can't even imagine the beauty in heaven. Okay, maybe. But uh, I know that when I create something beautiful, I cherish it. Yeah. And I can't help but think God cherishes this place and wants the full redemption of this place and us as opposed to um, deducting all of beauty from this place. Yeah. That I think for me is a, one of the biggest practical, like, so what's of this whole conversation as, as I've developed my own thoughts around the rapture and, or lack thereof, as far as I can tell. Um, and I know not everyone thinks like this, but if I, I tend to think in extremes, if I take the theology of the rapture to the extreme, it's, we're going to leave this place soon. It's, Earth is just a sinking ship, and so it's, who cares it, about plastic in the ocean? Yeah, who so cares it, about um, right. what's happening in the uh, rainforests and the deforestation? Who cares? Right, and so there's a that it maybe subtly, maybe for others more intensely, it creates this sense of yeah, I, I guess I don't have to care very much about the Earth that God has created for me, uh, and. While I do think that there's definitely something is going to be transformed, renewed, there's in, in the same way that our bodies are going to be resurrected, this earth has to be resurrected somehow. Um, but there's a constant theme that the earth is good and God loves it and he's not going to abandon it. And that I think should subtly shape us and how we think about our time here. And yeah. so if, if in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to care for the planet now, but we're going to leave soon. I, it just starts to shape us, I think, in a way that is is not where the biblical authors want us to, to focus on. So. 
So our big takeaway, Tyler, am I hearing you right? What we're saying is there really is no biblical evidence for a rapture. I don't think so. Can I do a quick, like, fire hose through Revelation? Because there's really nothing there, too, but... We'll, we'll oh, yeah. You got it. Just in case somebody wants to really debate this. Yeah, because so I, I will say the one verse that is is people that come into it thinking there has to be a rapture, especially this is more if you're a pre-tribulationist rapture person, which most of my friends are, I guess. But it's in, it's convenient. Pre-tribulation chapter, is convenient. Yeah, it's in chapter four, verse one. It has nothing to do. It never says the rapture, but it's a vision that John is getting. Uh, he sees heaven open. And a voice says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. So it's after John writes to the churches, and he gets this vision. And that phrase, come up here, they say, see, John is um, living out the rapture. He's being taken up before the tribulation. And so... I have never heard that before. Oh, it's, it's there. Oh, yeah. Uh, can <laughs> I say that? I mean, just, sorry, that's biblical crazy talk. A little bit. Because yeah. clearly it's, it's talking to John. I know, I know. So you, could, you would only pull that out if you already thought we as the church must be raptured before all this happens. That's true. If so you, you don't have, have your, your an book, objective yeah. way to uh, view this, and, it goes subjectively. Okay. So the I way they, they, they attach onto that, the word church, ekklesia in Greek, doesn't show up after chapter 4. Uh, and so they're saying, see, it's about something else. The church of God has been raptured. And so... One of the maybe the reasons for that is, uh, and I've heard this argued strongly, is that the God would not allow his people to suffer or to suffer wrath in particular. And there's a lot of judgments, the bowls and the, the trumpets and all that stuff in the book of Revelation. And so they assume, well, yeah, God would save us from that. And I want to say, well, that that doesn't line up with the rest of the Bible. Clearly, we continue or, to suffer along with the rest of the world. Yeah, or anybody's personal experience. Yeah. Like so, when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean um, unicorns and happy times for everybody. Right. And so that, it never really sits well with me, but that's part of the thinking. If if I want to say, well, we are all raptured before, and the, the word church doesn't go up, that's a good one. Um, there's plenty, like John is writing apocalyptically, see last episode, um, but he's he's using huge symbolic metaphorical language. The, the people that are marked by God, following God, the saints of God are all there. Uh, yeah, he doesn't call us the church, the ecclesia, but he's using much larger than life symbols and metaphors. I think uh, we, we would go too long, but just for, for my money, we're absolutely a part of this whole story. Um, and just the fact that John doesn't use the word ecclesia is not a good one. And so that that's the linkage to Revelation. And it's it's honestly kind of weak because the word never shows up. Even the idea never shows up unless you want to pull it out of places like chapter four, verse one. So, so you're saying that Thessalonians, that reference really is not particularly about a rapture. It's about the coming of the king. Yeah. And greeting the coming king. Way and, more about Jesus coming than us going anywhere. Yep. And then um, the Olivet Discourse is more about um, our kingdom allegiance, and there's really no reference there. It's the, the, the things that get interpreted as rapture are actually judgment verses as opposed to rapture verses. Yeah. And then in Revelation, it's, it's a stretch all the way around, except for maybe that Ecclesia doesn't show up. But I bet we could have a pretty interesting conversation about that. So, we definitely could. 
Maybe we so, wrecked your entire world. And um, if and you're still listening, if you're still listening, yeah, way to go. Um, and, and you've come to this uh, with us that, holy moly, there's no rapture. Um, that, that is actually an incredibly beautiful truth because it means that we have an urgent responsibility today to align ourselves with the kingdom of God and to help people in this, in the current signs of the times, find the kingdom of Christ, find Jesus as their Lord and Savior and step into relationship and step into that kingdom. That becomes our urgent responsibility. Yeah. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. So thank you for tuning in on this episode. This was fun. I liked it. So we're going to keep, we're going to keep going. We're going to pick up some other um, text as we go and talk about uh, end times things further. We look forward to seeing you and hope you have a blessed week. Uh, once again, like this, uh, rate it if it's on a podcast. We would love it if you would forward it or share it to, with other people. Um, I think this this conversation is one that needs to be shared throughout Christendom to help us get our, our world talking about these issues as opposed to just kind of looking forward to the future. So we invite you to do all of those things. Yeah. Have a great week and God bless you. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find more about the Kind Faith community at thekindfaith.org.